1: Finding Hope in Small Town America.
2: Our Town, Solutions and Reinvention, Part 2, James Follows.
3: This might seem one of many obvious points, but it took me by surprise because at the national level, you seem... Like some kind of fool or dreamer, if you even think of big plans the 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 federal government funds itself now in ten day intervals, <laughs> and the idea that we would ever send people to the moon or build great dams or whatever that seems like some some other country than the one we we live in now, so the idea that that you could go to places in western Kansas, and they had a master plan for how they're going to become centers of education, or the fact that people could make those bets and do so realistically and plausibly.
2: Our show is about fixes.
0: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it?
1: How do we fix it?
2: So, Jim, in last week's show, we were talking with James Fallows about Our Towns, his new and provocative book about small and medium sized communities all across the country, what some derisively call flyover country. And and he shared a whole bunch of stories with us. And on this episode, we're going to look at solutions.
1: Yeah, the interview was so interesting, we decided to break it into two halves. If you haven't heard the first half, You might want to go back and listen to it now. If not, just jump right in, because what he has to say about the way the local leaders and entrepreneurs are helping change the country for the better is just really provocative and and I thought fascinating.
2: And it runs so counter to the media narrative of of America being in, in a total crisis. That's true of Washington, but it's not so true of many communities, towns and cities, all across the country.
1: Right. I mean, he makes this point that the most successful towns and cities, the people there have gotten good at bypassing the dismal national conversation. So let's jump into our interview with James Fallows, who wrote the book Our Towns, A 100,000 Mile Journey into the Heart of America, with his wife, Deborah Fallows, who wasn't unfortunately able to join us.
2: So let's talk about some successful traits in towns and cities.
1: We've covered the brew pub. That's number one. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: People work together on practical local possibilities rather than letting their disagreements about national politics get in the way, right?
3: Oh, yes, yes, indeed. And, you know, we spent a lot of time going to public meetings, uh, city council meetings, library sessions or whatever. And as soon as somebody started giving a speech about why he didn't like either, Trump or George W. Bush or Obama or Hillary Clinton, you knew you were headed for trouble because that that meant you weren't going to talk about what was happening in the downtown or what was happening in the schools. So I think that a lot of towns have disciplined themselves to sort of compartmentalize uh, those national differences, much as you would say there's different religions you have or different sports teams you root for and concentrate on what they could do.
1: You also say that when you get to a town, the successful towns, everybody knows who the local patriots are. And you are not talking about a football team. Yeah, Tell yeah. us what you mean. Yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, the
3: configurations differed place by place. The most interesting may have been in Charleston, West Virginia, where the real dominant local patriot was a country music singer who ran a radio show, uh, sort of the the Woody Guthrie of this era in in West Virginia. But the fact that if people knew who the soul of the town was. That was a good sign.
2: So local pride had a lot to do with the success of a community?
3: Yes, and you can think of it this way, that, that there's a certain stage in life when people feel they're moving to some place to enjoy what's already there, You know, moving to Paris, moving to Amsterdam, moving to, to Brooklyn. And there's another stage of life where people feel some shared responsibility for making something in the long run. And so, so the, the greater the density of people who felt as if life outside their own household and life outside their own living room was part of their responsibility and part of their pride, that was obviously a very good sign too.
2: You talk a lot about public-private partnerships in your book. What are they?
3: So I, I wouldn't presume to speak for the two of you with your longtime media experience. But I'll tell you, my media experience, mainly in D.C., had been to be very skeptical at the whole idea of public-private partnerships. It sounded like either just some slogan for a speech or else as a way to funnel some public money <laughs> to some favored contractor. Um, I came over time to really believe in these things because what, – what, what are they, though? Uh, Let's talk about Greenville, something called the A.J. Wittenberg Elementary School of Engineering.
2: Think about that. An elementary school that's main focus is engineering.
3: Exactly. And so this is a public school in a very racially diverse and economically poor part of downtown Greenville, where the public part of it is the public school system and the private part of it is the big engineering intensive companies there general electric michelin bmw and a few others and the argument from the public side was we have a generation of people growing up here who we need to train for the opportunities of the future and that you these tech companies you need to have a workforce if you want to be able to do the advanced tech jobs you're doing so over the last you know period this school has been in operation you have engineers from these big companies coming either on their own time or the company's time to teach these little kids how um and you know, how to how to make robots how to put on the school production of Peter Pan and how to arrange things so that Peter Pan can fly how to do all sorts of advanced experiments and and these kids go on to be ready for these good high wage jobs. So that's a very specific public-private partnership where the school board organizes it, the companies make it go, and the city is much better off because it's there.
2: It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with James Fallows, talking about solutions.
0: Burroughs furniture is built for the way you live.
1: So
2: we're talking in this show about solutions. And one way to solve our needs, please, is to rate and review us on iTunes. iTunes is responsible for about 70% of all podcasts listening. And those five-star reviews and nice things that you say really make a difference. Um, how you do this is you follow along at iTunes.com, and there's also a description on our website, HowDoWeFixIt.me, that Miranda Schaefer, our producer, is very helpfully uh, put together that shows you step-by-step um, how to review us. We want to talk about education. Uh, first, uh, the importance of community colleges. Uh, you cite examples, for instance, in, in Fresno, California,
3: I had always assumed that what mattered most in American higher education is our big, famous research universities. And of course they do. The, the Harvards and the Berkeleys and the Caltechs, of course they're indispensable to the US. But I, I now think maybe the most important part of the system for this stage in American history may be the community colleges. And what i the reason I say that is, In this time of huge economic transition where the big factory jobs just aren't there anymore and people are wondering what the next source of middle class jobs will be, it seems to to me that the source of those jobs is in skilled technical fields, people who are building and repairing robotics and people who are building and maintaining advanced power systems and people who are welders and people who have all these advanced trade skills, which are in very high demand, have very high wages, and where there's not a significant adequate supply. And community colleges is where people who don't have skills can be connected With these new advanced demands to repair jet engines, there's a huge demand for people who are jet engine technicians. And the pay is very good. And anybody who can go through the training, uh, there's a job waiting for, for them. So community colleges, I think, are the most adaptive part of the American educational system now. And we should all
1: support them. Another thing that you say that you saw in these successful towns was the importance of having big plans. Yes, this might seem one of many obvious
3: points, but it took me by surprise because at the national level, you seem like some kind of fool or dreamer if you even think of big plans. The the federal government funds itself now in 10-day intervals. And the idea that we would ever send people to the moon or build great dams or whatever that seems like some some other country than the one we, we live in now. So the idea that, that you could go to... Sioux Falls and have their idea of how their downtown would evolve over the next two decades or go to to um, places in western Kansas. And they had a master plan for how they're going to become centers of education or go to to um, Erie, Pennsylvania, which has has gone through lots of economic shocks in the last 20 years, but their idea of how they were laying the foundation for the next generation of Erieites who will be both immigrants and and local people, the fact that people could make those bets and do so realistically and plausibly was was really a a welcome sign.
2: Back to Fresno in in California, which is anything but uh, our vision of a a prosperous community. (laughs) You talk about how... Children of farm workers are trained for higher tech agribusiness jobs.
3: Well, that was so, so impressive, both at the community colleges there and also some of the high schools in Fresno and the surrounding towns, too. They have recognized they have two big advantages over Famous parts of California, you know, in the Bay Area or Southern California. Number one is the cost of real estate is like you know one fourth as much or one fifth as much in Fresno in the Central Valley as it would be in the Bay Area. So for startups, there's that huge advantage, and they're trying to make the most of that. The second is they're right in the middle of the most productive agricultural land in the world, and they they feel as if their future, among other things, can be making themselves an agriculture advanced tech center of using their proximity to these fields to have sustainable agriculture and much more um, water efficient agriculture and much less wastage. And the people they're trying to train for these advanced jobs are largely the children of farm workers, people, mainly Latino, but also some blacks and whites whose parents were working in the fields and their children In these public schools are out there using GPS sensors to try to monitor the crops for efficiency and watering and just doing all these other things that make you think this is the next application of technology in the traditional industry of agriculture where it matters and where there will be jobs.
1: So did this trip 100,000 miles around the U.S. where you and your wife in your little single engine aircraft, did it make you more optimistic than you had been?
3: profoundly so. I am by nature a look on the glasses half full kind of person. This is uh, what my 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 parents, but especially my dad um, inculcated in me. That, that's, but,
2: that's our bias too. Uh, yeah. G- Jim and I. Jim and
3: I fall <laughs> yes. into that category. And, and, and it's all, it makes life a lot more pleasant than, than the other. Than but also now I feel as if this is a realistic view for the United States in the following way. It is genuinely true, number one, that U.S. national politics are in a very bad situation. It's genuinely true, number two, there are serious challenges for the country, ranging from opioids, which I think is a, a real, uh, probably the worst thing we saw around the country, to all the dislocations of this economic age. But what we hadn't known before we traveled, what we're trying to convey to people who read this book or we connect with in other ways, is how much the solutions to those serious problems are being worked out right now. And we don't, you know, we Americans don't know about it because it's happening place by place by place by place. Um, David Brooks in the New York times had a column a couple of weeks ago, which said the American Renaissance is already underway. he was talking about what Deb and I had seen, but we really feel as if, if the news of what's happening place by place can be more broadly shared and connected, and people can have the sense that they're part of something larger than just their own isolated partial success story, then the chance of broader success goes up. So that's why I'm so delighted that you're doing the series you're doing, and I'm so glad to be part of it.
1: Um, Not long ago, we interviewed a truck driver named Finn Murphy on How Do We Fix It? And he's driven everywhere in the country. And he said that pretty much downtowns are dead all across the country every town he goes to unless it's a tourist town or a college town but you're a little bit more optimistic about the ability to get some of these beautiful downtowns back on their feet what what are people doing how do they pull that off
3: so i'm a big fan of finn murphy his book is great i think there is a trend underway which which we have means may have seen in a different way from what he has as as a trucker where there's a couple thousand places across the country where where uh, the National Trust for Historic Preservation and many other downtown movements have seen things going in the right direction. and And a couple of things are accelerating this. One of the most important may be that people of the Next generation, I won't use the term millennial, but people in their 20s and early 30s, there is a preference not so much for the suburban ideal model of American life, but for the downtown ideal of American life, of working downtown, of living downtown. So city by city and state by state, you see illustrations of downtowns reconstructing themselves. So I think the trend is more positive than the one he has seen.
2: And those downtown areas are not just little bijou um, places that are
3: already affluent, right? Uh, no, let's take Allentown, Pennsylvania. Allentown is nobody's idea of a bijou community. <laughs> you know, that, that is place. its place is known from uh, from Billy Joel's song of Allentown, even though the mills he was talking about were in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. But but Allentown's downtown had been a very prosperous place in the 1950s and 1960s, it was utterly devastated by suburban malls so that the downtown 10 years ago was tattoo parlors and pawn shops and and drug dens. But they, in the last three or four years, have had a concerted effort to to have the virtuous cycles of downtowns where you have businesses going down there because there is some a demand among younger people to, to work downtown. You have residents following on there. You have not touristy, but locally viable retail and dining and entertainment and all that. So there are a number of places. Duluth, you're seeing the same thing happening. Bandar, and although it's somewhat touristy. It, Kansas City is, is a, at Columbus, Ohio. It's a college town, but still the non-college parts, they've come back. So I think it's more widespread. Birmingham, Alabama has been as quite a downtown renovation. So it's not just tourist traps.
2: James Fellows, I know you have a, a hard stop and and didn't want to uh, abuse the privilege too much. <laughs> but, but thank you very much. Yeah, what a pleasure.
3: Well, it, it, it's an honor and privilege, so thank you so much. And I look forward to staying in the same force field with you all.
2: So, Jim, instead of Us giving our opinions, Uh, let's go down the list of James and Deb Fallows solutions, starting with public-private partnerships. There are many examples, local examples, of these private-public partnerships.
1: And what I like is the fact that they're not too big. They're not too bloated. One was in Holland, Michigan, where this local scrap company works with the Department of Corrections to bring in ex-cons to To work in their business You know a lot of people are afraid of hiring ex-cons We've talked about that on how do we fix it Here's a local member of the community stepping up to start being part of the solution.
2: They also talk about education and the importance of community colleges, uh, that successful communities are often near a research university. And then they also talk about distinctive, innovative schools. And one example that James mentioned that really jumped out at me is the uh, school in Greenville, South Carolina. Right, the elementary school for, for, engineering. for engineering. And then and then there's the school in Mississippi for maths and sciences that he also discusses.
1: Yeah, and, and the idea, this is where the private public stuff is really great. Bringing in engineers from the, the local high tech firms to be part of the school system and inspire these kids. Small things, but they really matter. And there
2: there's so many things we didn't talk about that we, that we wanted to get into and one of them is the importance of local libraries yeah. that, that are on Camps, for jobs there are community centers and they also help people get on wi-fi in communities that are poorly served
1: right uh, yeah and i think that's it's sometimes tempting to think that things like that are sort of passe but the libraries the ymcas all these kind of old-fashioned local institutions really matter especially at a time when you know as, we, as we've covered on how do we fix it some of the the fabric that weaves us together as people is is really straining at the seams so places that bring everyone together really matter
2: another on our list is this idea that that people know who the, the local leaders that they are proud of in their recent history
1: yeah and he said that when you when they would walk into a new town everyone knew who they were you know they these people had been fixtures um doing good things for the community over the long haul and I, I think that is um, again. It's not the kind of thing. It might seem kind of corny or, or old fashioned. That, but it really matters.
2: And then, Jim, there's ten and a half
1: right on his list. I love this example: the brew pub, the craft brewery. But uh, James made this really good point. A lot of people think that. Large scale capitalism inevitably runs towards massive crushing monopolies that take over everything. Well, that was actually happening in the beer business, you know, throughout most of my lifetime. You know, it was getting to the point where everything was, you know, was it was either Coors, was, Miller, or, or Budweiser, and you couldn't, and the, the best beer you could buy was like maybe a Molson, you know what I mean, when I was in college. And then all of a sudden, consumers just got sick of it and they revolted, and people started, you know, making homebrew. He mentioned how Jimmy Carter uh, uh, deregulated home brewing, so you weren't a crook if you brewed up a few gallons of, of uh, an ale in your basement, and that movement really spread. People didn't want to go work for big companies. They wanted to start their own little company. A lot of what we think of this new, exciting economy today with entrepreneurs, a lot of it started with these craft brewing businesses. They're not all going to succeed, but the fact that they're popping up everywhere, they're attracting people, they're, they can be good employers, and they make good local beer. I think that's just a really nice story, and it runs counter to a lot of the pessimism we see or the assumption that change only comes from the biggest corporations or the biggest levels of government.
2: I agree with you with one exception. I prefer a good local wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim and The show is produced by Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Check us out for other podcasts on DaviesContent.com.
3: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue.